0: Welcome to the Cold Case Cooldown Chat. Coach Christine here with our debut post workout cooldown conversation. And I am thrilled to have Dr. J here with me today. Dr. J is a brilliant scholar, researcher, and she's also the writer behind the McDonald family episode. She graciously agreed to find time to chat with us all during our cool down and with a background in sociology and emphasis on crime and deviant behavior. Dr. J is without a doubt the person that I always turn to when I have questions on why did they do that on the running scared cases. So friends, now that you're done with your workout, let's go ahead and keep that cool down going. It's a great time to break out the foam roller for post run recovery work as we dig a little deeper into this fascinating case. Thank you, Dr. J for sharing this case with the running scared community and for taking the time to chat with us during our cool down.
1: Thank you so much for having me among the running scared numbers.
0: Great. We're super excited because Dr. J, this case is riveting. So without a shadow of a doubt, like there's just a bazillion questions that come up, right? But I want to know, you didn't just get into this case just for this podcast. You've been into this one for quite some time. What captivated your attention? What really brought this to the forefront of something you were interested in?
1: So I was a military child. Uh, In fact, my brother was actually born at Pope Air Force Base, which is right there outside of Fort Bragg where this happened. And while that was much later than the case, The case still permeated the culture in Fayetteville. In fact, people would flock to the house to take pictures. It became part of the the culture that at one point in time, you actually stopped by the McDonald House to see the site of the crime. And in fact, for a very long time, they had MPs who were tasked with the job of preserving everything in the house as it was. So they even maintained the things in the refrigerator for years so that everything was as pristine as it was when they arrived that night. And so it's something that's always fascinated me and been part of that, that culture around both military bases. So that was part of it. The other thing is I've always been a reader. I love stories and I love true crime. And my earliest memories are of my mom reading. And so from the first memories that I have, it's me with a book trying to make sure that I could get into these tales. And true crime was always something that the motives I found fascinating, the, the why's and the how's. And so I really got into true crime as a way to make sense of things that were oftentimes inexplicable.
0: This particular case is one of your, like, you are most intrigued by it for various reasons, not only because you lived kind of close to it, but you kind of like this particular type of killer, shall we, for lack of a better phrase.
1: So we spend a lot of time talking about serial killers, and of course they're they're fascinating for the imagination. There are shows like Criminal Minds that are devoted to these unsubs or unknown subjects that, that commit it. McDonald was a little different. Rather than a serial killer, he is a family annihilator. And they have an entirely different kind of motivation for their actions. And in fact, an overwhelming majority of them are male. They are mostly in their 30s. But there is a slightly different motivation, whereas serial killers often come from a place of rejection. For family annihilators, they have an entirely different kind of motive.
0: Do you have, well, I'm sure you do because that's kind of what you do. What is usually their motive?
1: So there's a number of different reasons that they can get into this modality. So one of them is the self-righteous killer and the self-righteous killer seeks to blame usually the mother figure for some kind of breakdown in the family. And so this might have, in the McDonald case, stemmed from her enrollment in college and that movement towards independence, which he saw as threatening to his masculinity. So that's a potential trigger right there. Another reason that they oftentimes engage in this behavior is from disappointment. They think that the family in some way has let him down or acted in ways that counter his vision of an ideal family life. And so while his children were young, and probably not that, her entry into the workforce might have definitely been something that challenged his notions of propriety. Other things, there's the anomic killer, um, where success, specifically economic success, becomes the end-all and be-all of masculinity. And so if there is anything that triggers a feeling of lack or seeing himself no longer as the, the breadwinner or this figure of economic success, that can also trigger a family annihilator. And then finally, there's the paranoid family annihilators. And we rarely see those. Those are the ones who see threats outside of the home. So whether it's the legal system, the FBI, social security, those tend to be people that have already paranoid tendencies. But with McDonald as a family annihilator, it answers the question of how could someone who was so successful, so seemingly perfect by all accounts, so well-liked, suddenly snack? And that's probably why I think family annihilators are so interesting is because there's a variety of of reasons that they they can do this. And I think McDonald tends to fall into that self-righteous and slightly disappointed category.
0: So I think it's fair to say that you are, if we were going to say this unsolved murder has an absolute conclusion, your team, he did it.
1: Absolutely. Okay. He did it. He still maintains his innocence. He has tried for parole repeatedly, but I am definitely of the, the the ilk that believe that he did it. So I follow along with Jeffrey McGinnis, who wrote the the novel that, that is, or Joe McGinnis rather, that wrote the novel that really precipitated this entire case coming into the limelight. As you mentioned in the case, McGinnis was intended to show that he didn't do it, that he could not have done it. And the more he interacted with McDonald, the more he came to the conclusion that McDonald definitely did it.
0: So are there particular parts of the case that make you think absolutely there's no way that there was a copycat murder of the Manson family, that this was indeed carried out by Dr. McDonald?
1: In the 1970s, the Manson murders were all over the news. They were the talk of the town. The fact that he had a well-thumbed magazine that, that detailed exactly what Squeaky From and the other members of the Manson family did in the Tate household, that's a pretty big giveaway. The mm-hmm. other thing, and as I know you mentioned in the podcast, the very precisely placed injuries that McDonald had, As somebody who worked in the medical field and as a surgeon, he was well aware of how to put those injuries so that he could show that he put up a good fight, but without actually risking his health. Again, trying to fend off attackers with your shirt.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that was probably one of the parts of the case where I was like, "Mm, dude, come on, nobody's believing this whatsoever. But I also found over the top was his description of the chant that this group of people were doing. It just sounded really just a little bit too much. Um, But it is. I'm so glad that you mentioned that because there's no doubt that because the Manson family case was all over, it had just happened, what, six to seven months prior to this case coming into play. It definitely creates a lot of question for some folks. And at that time, Family Annihilator, really outside of the legal law enforcement realm, was not something that people were that aware of. So let's say we want to give him the benefit of the doubt. You also researched and highlighted quite a few alternatives. I'm curious if you could maybe give us a little bit more of that deeper dive into some of them because I wasn't able to share them all.
1: Sure. And I think it's important that before we talk about this, we do acknowledge that forensic technology has come so far. So many of us have been raised on a variety of tra- true crime shows or even fictitious crime shows where we see people carefully pouring over DNA in the lab. And some of those technology bits were not available at this time in the 1970s. So it was outstanding that they could actually blood type in the house never mind discover which blood type belonged to whom or which blood revol- uh, was for which child right um, these, these were things that i think sometimes we take take uh, granted now granted, not realizing that this was something that that was not available for them. So there were a number of things that the MPs did that they probably in retrospect could have done better. However, coming to a scene where you find blood and women and children in the condition that they found the bodies, it's understandable that perhaps they would not have followed protocol. So one of those things is that there was a flower pot in the living room that had fallen over. And at some point, in time. Uh, They learned that the flower pot had actually been righted and so that led to them thinking that perhaps this, this crime scene had been staged because there really wasn't all that much tumult. If an adult male was fighting off these attackers, there should have been more than just a coffee table flipped over on its side. That seems like a piddly amount of damage. Mm-hmm. And so I think that was one of the things that they discovered especially, is that there were a number of things that, that happened from first responders who took things from the scene or who righted things in their attempt to I think, to try to make sense of what they were viewing at the time. So that that was one. Um, Another thing that really kind of threw them for a while was the fact that there was this table that was flipped over and the prosecutor contended that there is no way that this table flipped over in the manner that he had argued, that there was just absolutely no physical way. And they did this repeatedly um, until they went to try to recreate the fight. And when they went to try to recreate the fight, they found that that if he kicked the table instead of shoving the table over or bumping the table which is what they had tried to do that it actually did land the way that mcdonald had said so there were a number of things that that on further inspection could potentially have corroborated his story. There were some other small things. So there were pieces of skin that they were found under Colette's fingernails. um, And that, of course, it disappeared after it was collected. There was so much evidence that was collected that small things tended to to
0: escape collection. So you kind of already discussed a little bit about it. Can we get a, a bit more into the other suspects, specifically Helena Stokely.
1: So such an interesting figure, Helena Stokely and her group of friends that they just happened that night to be down the street about two minutes from the McDonald household. So there were some people who potentially put them in, in the house. So one of the things that they found in the house was a candle wax that did not belong to any of the candles that were found in the household. Now, albeit, they did not collect the trash from the McDonald house before it was taken out. And so there could have been a candle that it matched that was just thrown out before they were able to collect it. But it did seem to, in some ways, point to this group of hippies who had broken in with malicious intent. So she's an interesting figure for a lot of reasons. She, I don't think people realize how young she was when she died. This was a young lady with serious substance abuse problems who obviously had done great damage to her brain and her mental capacities to where she confused fact and fiction.
0: Interesting, interesting. It actually does seem like it was just a perfect storm for this individual, for Helen, and how she actually ended up impacting this case in so many different ways with causing just enough, a little bit of doubt in some people's minds. Now, Dr. J, I'm curious, you've mentioned already what makes you so fascinated, what why you gravitate towards true crime. Can we talk a little bit about running? Can you give me a little bit of why or how do you interweave your fascination with true crime and running?
1: So not only do I avidly listen to your podcast, I am somebody who cannot run without listening to stories. I need something on which to focus. I'm not a particularly good runner. I, I wish I could say that I was a speedy runner who absolutely loved it, who got runners high and just experienced this euphoric sensation every time I ran. That is not the case. I love running for the distraction that it provides, and so I need to be listening to something that will keep my attention. And so I think true crimes and the puzzles that they provide are ways for me to make sense of things and to busy my mind so that I don't really notice what my body is doing. Because frankly, we don't really like it.
0: I completely understand that. A little bit of distraction and let that mind of yours kind of get to work on solving some of these cases, especially with this particular one that has such a close, near and dear to your heart. Now, I know that you have a sociology background. Do you feel that like what came first for you, chicken or the egg? Did your reading and your desire to learn more about these true crime events kind of lead you to want to have a bit more of that sociology in your formal education or was it how did it work out for you
1: well, I have always been a nerd, and I unapologetically wave my nerd badge. Um, I, I love to learn. And so I think when I was in fifth grade, I read Helter Skelter, which is the story of the Manson family murders. Um, and it's told by Vincent Uliosi, who is the prosecutor. And just listening to how this story unfolded and trying to prosecute those those involved and how charismatic he was, I wanted to know more. I wanted to understand. And so it moved from wanting to understand deviant behavior, wanting to understand these cult-like figures who who really became almost folk heroes to people, despite the the atrocious things that they did. And so when I went to college, I was interested in sociology. Um, But even more than just sociology, which is group dynamics, because I think that groups really do influence the way that we behave, or psychology, which is just the individual and, and is approach, I was very interested in motives. And so I actually took a kind of strange turn in my academics and ended up in rhetoric, which is the art of persuasion. And so part of rhetorician's job is to understand why people say and do the things that they do. And there's a very influential rhetorician by the name of Kenneth Burke, who came up with the Pentad. And the Pentad, although that sounds satanic, has nothing to do with that. <laughs> uh, it's really the five points that people should pay attention to, to understand how people behave the way that they do. And so I think that in, in looking at the rhetoric of motives, that's one of the reasons that I got my PhD in rhetoric and textual studies. First of all, I was so interested in what people say and do and what they think that means, and then secondly, textual studies, because everything is a text. And so I think sometimes people think of those dusty, crusty tomes that were written ages ago as texts, but there's so many things that are texts. So my favorite story to tell my students is that there was an episode of Sex and the City where Carrie gets so upset because she gets uh, broken up with on a post-it note. Yes,
0: I recall that. that
1: with is that it was the post-it note not that she was broken up with but the means in which he did that to me it's fascinating why would someone do this in that fashion and in that form? And what does that communication tell us? And so I think that, I know that's a, a silly example and I've never actually seen Sex in the City, so sorry. I have seen that one, but I've never actually see, seen the show. But that's that and that interest in, in motives and why people behave the way they do, what they think it means, and then what it comes to mean to others. That was really what got to me in terms of my academics and why I pursued the course of studies that I did.
0: So I love that and bringing that back towards this. Friends, if you are interested in this deep dive that we're having here with Dr. J, then I would love to invite you all to join the Facebook community, R- Running Scared with Coach Christine, where we're going to actually debut a little bit of extra fun there with Dr. J with a online chat because she does have all of this academia that she can share with us. We can get our answers to the questions that are posed throughout these cases. Now, Dr. J, we have just about 60 seconds here to wrap up our cool down. People can start winding down, or maybe they already have poured themselves a glass of wine. We're going to talk a little bit about that lessons learned. So, The lesson that I had, the biggest takeaway from the McDonald case is that when we grow up, instead of wanting to marry a doctor, we should just become a doctor like Dr. J. What's your biggest takeaway lesson from this case?
1: I think for me that we have to constantly be aware of our surroundings and that sometimes we tend to let our guard lapse specifically at home, but home can sometimes, and for many people, not be the safest place. And I think for many of us, that's why we run. We do run away from home in a sense every time that we run because running becomes our safe place.
0: I love that. And actually, that's probably what I'm going to do as soon as we wrap up here. I'm going to get back out there and run away from that laundry that I need to do. Friends, thank you so much for joining us for this cool down chat. Again, come over to Running Scared Facebook community page. I'll have that in the episode notes. And Dr. J, thank you so much. This case was indeed fascinating and it would not have been the same without you.